0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: The system is definitely broken and the system breaks people. I've seen it, I've lived it, and I've breathed it.
0: Like many areas across the country, the housing crisis continues on the south coast of New South Wales, where 50 people have resorted to living long-term at a campground near Morooya. That story soon. And we head to central Queensland, where four-year-old Mila's day is full of intense therapy and medication, and she has cystic fibrosis. A new medication would vastly improve her quality of life in the near future, but it's only subsidised for people over 12.
2: Families can't afford it because, you know, it's like $300,000 a year just for this one drug. Not to mention there are many other drugs as well. So it's just out of reach.
0: I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide. We start in the Northern Territory and the demise of the company Sun Cable and its high-profile renewable energy project known as the Australia-Asia Power Link. The project had the ambitious plan of exporting solar power from a vast solar farm in the country's sun-drenched north to Singapore via an undersea cable. It had the backing of two of Australia's richest people, iron ore magnate Andrew Forrest and tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks. Yet it was placed into voluntary administration in recent weeks. So how did it come to this and what does the collapse of sun cable mean for these ambitious large-scale renewable energy projects? Daniel Mercer is the ABC's energy reporter. Daniel, this was a very high-profile project with two of Australia's wealthiest and most well-known business identities behind it, what happened to Sun Cable?
3: Well, it was a a combination of things, uh, Alex, but in the end um, a falling out between the pair of billionaires behind it sort of proved to be the straw, the proverbial straw. It was chewing through a lot of money to try to get this project into reality, uh, a lot of design work and real sort of front-end engineering work was going on, costing a lot of money. Um, they were trying to drum up support for the project here, there and everywhere, but particularly in Singapore where they were supposed to find customers. And, you know, it was only a year or two ago that they raised in the realms of $200 million from investors to undertake that work, um, but yet um, they were going preparing to go cap in hand back to investors to raise another $60 million um, about the time that Mike Cannonbrooks and Andrew Forrest essentially split. Um, and so they just ran out of money. I mean, that's the short answer, but as is always the case with these sorts of things, there's a bit of a backstory to it. and And really... Um, that backstory is the, you know, the extreme complexity and difficulty of this project um, was proving just to be a bit of a bridge too far to, to cross. Um, and they hadn't drummed up the customers that they really required to bankroll the project and the sort of customers that were going to be required before any bank chipped in, you know, the $35 billion uh, or thereabouts um, capital construction cost.
0: The project was ambitious in its scale, but was the idea of exporting solar power to Singapore by undersea cable that far-fetched?
3: On the face of it, you'd probably think not. Uh, it stands to good reason that you would want to connect, you know, some of the world's best renewable energy resources, which Australia has, in it's north in particular, where it gets so much sunshine uh, for so much of the year with really big centres of electricity demand, like Singapore. Um, and Singapore isn't that far away, really, when you think about it. I mean, for example, in Perth, it actually in, via uh, a plane flight is quicker to get to Singapore than Sydney. So, you know, on the face of it, it doesn't necessarily seem that far away. Um, but of course, there's always that devil in the detail and these subsea cables do exist in the world that, that transport essentially a lot of electricity, but they are orders of magnitude smaller than the one that Sun Cable was proposing to build. I mean, for example, the biggest one in the world that is currently under construction is what's known as the Viking link between Denmark and the UK, and that's about 770 kilometres long. By comparison, the sea cable that was going to be really the the spine of the Sun Cable project was 4,200 kilometres long, and wow. it was going to go from Darwin to Singapore through Indonesian waters. It really has to be pointed out, through another jurisdiction's waters, and some of those waters are incredibly deep in places, up to two kilometres deep. That sort of a technical engineering feat has never been achieved with this sort of infrastructure before.
0: Are other mega projects around the globe facing similar challenges? Or what does this? particular case mean for these types of projects?
3: Yeah, well, look, in Australia, we've got a couple of them. Sun Cable was probably the best known, but if you travel a few hundred kilometres west of the Northern Territory uh, where Sun Cable was proposing to build its project, you come across uh, a proposal uh, by a consortium led by the oil giant BP. Um, Their project is called the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. Uh, and that is of a similar magnitude, about $30, $35 billion. Um, And it wants to uh, build a lot, a heck of a lot of solar panels um, backed with batteries and so forth and wind turbines. And it wants to use that renewable energy to essentially export uh, the product to markets in Asia, whether they're in Singapore or North, North Asia. But they're kind of very similar in that sense. Funnily enough, the Asian renewable energy hub some years ago also had ambitions to do it by subsea cable but it basically abandoned that idea some time ago and instead pursued a strategy of trying to turn the renewable energy into green hydrogen or ammonia for exports you know the, you know really kind of con- deeming that that was a more technically and economically feasible approach Neither of these projects obviously have gone to market, and Sun Cable has collapsed. And there are precedents for similar sorts of difficulties by mega projects over in North Africa and Europe, where they want to send solar resources essentially from Morocco and such places to the European Union. But they haven't come to pass simply for the same sorts of difficulties that we've just been discussing.
0: So, is that it for Sun Cable?
3: Not necessarily. I mean, voluntary administration doesn't mean the company has been liquidated, wound up and sold off. It has been put into a a sort of a life support, really, um, where they're going to... the, the, The voluntary administrators or the administrators of the venture are going to try to sell it as a going concern to other interested buyers. Now, there's Speculation that both Mike Cannabrooks and Twiggy want to have their own respective bids for it. Um, Mike Cannabrooks is said to still be very keen on the idea of the subsea cable to Singapore. Andrew Forrest, as is now well known, is definitely not a fan of that approach and he would rather use the renewable resources from Sun Cable to make green hydrogen to send to Singapore. He's also, through a company called CWP, a big investor in the Asian Renewable uh, Hub project so he's very much got skin in that particular game and Sun cable didn't necessarily chime with that strategy uh, it could very well be the case that Sun cable is resurrected and you know we see it essentially going to market again trying to drum up business soon but time will tell
0: Daniel Mercer is the ABC's energy reporter and he's been talking us through the collapse of the company Sun cable Dan thanks so much for speaking to Australia wide once again
3: pleasure thanks Alex
0: and you can read more on Daniel Mercer's piece on the collapse of Sun Cable on the ABC News website.
4: You're listening to Australia Wide.
5: On ABC Radio.
0: You are indeed listening to Australia Wide with me, Alex Hyman, in for Sinead Mangan for this week. It's great to have your company. Sinead will be back again with you from Monday. And remember, you can always email the program. We love to hear what is happening in your part of the world. AustraliaWide.radio at abc.net.au. That's AustraliaWide.radio at abc.net.au. Let's head to the New South Wales south coast now. The housing crisis continues to affect every corner of the country, with Australia's most vulnerable people resorting to desperate measures to keep themselves safe from the elements. In the small town of Maruya, where the population is just over 4,000, the local council are trying desperately to find housing solutions as more than 50 people have resorted to living longer term at a campground. Batemans Bay reporter Fatima Ulumi has this story.
6: Robin Goodsell has no confidence in the public housing system, especially after experiencing homelessness herself. The
1: system is definitely broken and the system breaks people. I've seen it, I've lived it and I've breathed it.
6: She understands the issue inside and out, having dedicated decades of her life working in the public housing sector and after recently having to move from Canberra and leave her job, she's without a home yet again and living in a tent. The Welwundjer Duringanj woman has been living at North Head Campground in Maruya, on the New South Wales south coast for almost two weeks.
1: I can't live like this 54 Aboriginal year old woman who has worked nearly all her life, has sacrificed so many things. There is something wrong here. Settlement came here 235 years ago and I'm living in a tent and they're acknowledging this is traditional land.
6: She's still in shock over having to resort to residing at the campsite despite her years of hard work.
1: I feel like I'm an outcast living on a mission on the edge of the town. And yet I've worked on every level of government for 25 years, social welfare 15 years. I have 20 certificates. I've been to university. I can't even get a job.
6: Miss Goodsell's resume highlights include working for the New South Wales Aboriginal Housing Office and ACT Housing. She believes her lived experience of homelessness and insight into the support that vulnerable people desperately need would be invaluable in the housing sector.
1: I can help communities. I can't even get a job to do that. And those people that are getting jobs over me, where are they? What are they doing?
6: The Yorubadala Shire Council has allowed a growing number of people living in the North Head campground to stay beyond the state government mandated 50-day limit. Eurobadala Mayor Matthew Hatcher raised the issue with Premier Dominic Perrottet when he visited the south coast last week. Mr Hatcher wants the mandate lifted for local caravan parks. I think
7: some of the the easier options that that we've presented to the Premier, really that 50-day ban on the caravan parks post bushfires and through COVID, Coming off the back of the holidays now, we're going to have some of these businesses in caravan parks with empty rooms.
6: He says it's more than just an election issue.
7: I get very sick of seeing promises made for elections, some action being made after that and then leading into the next election, we're just looking at promises again. We're not seeing much movement from the state government or the federal government. We're quite often looking at everything that they're doing is medium and long term.
6: Mr Perrottet says his government has invested in short term accommodation for people affected by fires and floods.
7: We have put significant
0: investments into pods, into caravans, into um, short-term accommodation, but at the same time, continue to move so that we open up housing and unlock supply, so that uh, we have more homes right across our state. You've
4: been in government for so long enough now to actually generate short-term supply, and particularly in this area That simply hasn't happened. Why should voters be confident if they vote you back in that you'll actually take
8: action given it hasn't
0: happened? Because we're the only team, the Liberals and Nationals, with the plan to take our state forward and have the capacity and the financial ability to actually invest in those matters.
6: The state's Shadow Minister for Housing, Rose Jackson, says Labor plans to take immediate action to tackle homelessness if elected
2: we would look to immediately bring on meanwhile use facilities and so what that means is whether it's hotels, motels, um, perhaps old hospital sites, nursing home sites, there, there are often sites that are available perhaps they're awaiting redevelopment or other uses that can be used as transitional accommodation now that's not a permanent solution the permanent solution is building more social housing and building more affordable rental.
6: Ms Goodsell is focusing on local solutions including a plan to make North Head more livable for long-stay homeless residents.
1: The local land council manages some of the Aboriginal housing office housing there's so much room at the back of the house. You could turn it almost into a duplex or you could put a kit home on it or you could put a granny flat and, you know, and it's faster to put a kit home. Aboriginal Land Council's got so much land but we don't have the funds to put housing on, on the land. So we're sitting down here at North Heads. I did a 10-page proposal to the local council. What services are coming here? If you purchase 10 little washing machines and fridges and freezers, like everything to make us comfortable, it was only like $50,000. I did a budget.
6: But she says it won't be possible without collaboration between all the services. You can sit there and talk all day. I want to see action.
0: That's Robin Goodsell ending that report from Fatima Alumi on the New South Wales south coast.
7: All around the country, you're on ABC Australia Wide.
6: I eat corn sometimes and my mum cooks it in the oven.
8: Well, Charles, how much rain did we have? He said, no, none. I said, you're mad, man.
6: ABC Australia Wide.
8: Because I came from Wynyard area where it rains and rains and
7: rains. And when it's not raining, it's raining more. On ABC Radio.
0: When a life-changing treatment for cystic fibrosis was added to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme last year, it was great news for those with the condition, as the price dropped from tens of thousands of dollars a month to around $40. But the subsidy is only for those aged over 12, meaning families with young children still don't have affordable access to it. But advocates and one central Queensland mum are trying to change that. Katrina Bevan has this story.
1: Get me.
5: Four-year-old Mila is a lively young girl who loves jumping on the trampoline with her sister. But as her mum, Jamie Sewell, knows too well, Mila's day can often look a little different to other kids her age because she has cystic fibrosis.
2: We try and make it work and blend in and make it normal and fun, but, you know, it's hours of treatments, physiotherapy, nebulisers, inhalant drugs... I mean she needs medication every time she just eats a snack so she needs um, like a handful of pills every day and that's normal for Mila and then there's not to mention the um, infection control so she can catch viruses that make her incredibly unwell but she can also catch bacteria that send her with lung infections and hospitalizations and stuff that a four-year-old shouldn't have to do. There's a new treatment drug for the condition, described as a complete game-changer, but it's very expensive. Families can't afford it because, you know, it's like $300,000 a year just for this one drug, not to mention there are many other drugs as well, so it's just out of reach. The medicine is called Trikafta, and it was added to the
5: Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme last year, but only for ages 12 and above. The CEO of Cystic Fibrosis Australia, Joe Armstrong, says that needs to change.
9: Trikafta is a life-changing medication. It is the closest thing to a cure that people with cystic fibrosis have. It's a triple combination therapy and a new class of drug that um, is life-changing for people living with cystic fibrosis. The longer children have to wait for this medication, the later they'll see the benefits of this medication. There are at least 20 other countries in the world that have Trikafta available and subsidised for children um, ages six and upwards. Unfortunately, Australia is not yet one of them. In November the
5: Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee recommended it be added to the PBS for six to 11 year olds. The federal government says it will work with the company behind the drug to add it to the PBS for younger children as quickly as possible but it's not clear how long that will take and advocates like Joe Armstrong want to see
9: a firm deadline. The challenge that we have here is we don't know how long this time is. We have an indefinite amount of time and we're waiting in limbo, not knowing when this medication will be made available. I urge all stakeholders, including the government and Vertex Pharmaceuticals, to accelerate their discussions and pricing negotiations so that there is no delay and that Trikafta can be made available immediately. Back
5: in Rockhampton, Jamie wants certainty that Mila will be able to access the medication
2: as soon as she turns six. With a progressive illness, you don't have time. Like, the damage is being done as time passes, so we just need it available immediately. If we can get her on track after, You know, I don't have to think about the possibility of outliving her. Everyone deserves to live a quality of life. It shouldn't be the dollar figure of a drug that's interfering with that.
4: Stay away or
2: Stay away.
0: Rockhampton mum, Jamie Sewell, ending that report from Katrina Bevan. If you want to read more on that, you can head to uh, ABC Capricornia. Just search for that. You're listening to Australia Wide. on ABC Radio. And finally, let's head to WA's north, the Pilbara town of Port Hedland, where a pillar of the community has had a win in securing a final resting place for he and his wife. 96-year-old Arnold Carter has lived in Port Hedland for over half of his life. After he dies, he wishes to be buried in the town's Pioneer Cemetery. The only problem is that the cemetery was declared full in 1968 and is closed. Now, after a year-long battle with the state government, Mr Carter has had his wish approved. Amelia Searson has this story.
4: On the top of a small hill overlooking the ocean lies Port Hedland's Pioneer Cemetery, just outside the town centre. 96-year-old Arnold Carter has called the town home since 1962. He says the Pioneer Cemetery is the perfect spot to be buried.
8: When I got here, there was nothing in Port Hedland at all. All I found here was a beautiful, idyllic piece of uh, land and that's exactly where we've asked to be buried is to an outlook on the ocean. Without the ocean, you would never have Port Hedland.
4: But the cemetery was declared full in 1968 and officially closed three years ago. This meant Mr Carter had to ask the state government for permission to be buried there and a little known part of WA's burial rules meant a decision would only be made after he died.
8: It was definitely not permitted which I thought thought was uh, rather intriguing. I then became determined that I would like to persist and be buried in that same, uh, same position.
4: He wasn't happy with that answer and pushed the authorities to give him an exemption before he died. In the end, Mr Carter's persistence paid off. Late last year, the state government granted both Mr Carter and his 91-year-old wife Frances exemptions, meaning they'll be buried together in the cemetery.
8: Very, very brilliant letter from a very brilliant uh, Shire Council advising me that they had uh, received the uh, okay from the Governor g- General. And uh, above all, they also notified me the exact place where we are going to be buried, which I'm very, very thankful for.
4: A state government spokesperson says Mr. Carter's application was supported by the town of Port Hedland, which identified a suitable site in the cemetery where pre existing graves wouldn't be disturbed. The spokesperson says similar approaches are rare and the Pioneer Cemetery will remain closed to the rest of the public. For decades, Mr and Mrs Carter watched a small northern community grow into a town which helps fuel the nation's economy and has one of the world's largest iron ore loading ports. They say their burial in the Pioneer Cemetery is a fair reward after years of contribution to Port Hedland. Mr Carter was president of the local council, owned 28 businesses and is decorated with numerous awards, while Mrs Carter received an Order of Australia medal for her contributions to the local hospital. Their dedication earned them a place alongside the graves of Port Hedland's earliest residents.
8: It's an honour to be able to achieve what you want to do. I'm talking about history and uh, I think we, we would be very pleased that were involved in that historical nation.
4: Chris Harrington is the Chief Executive of the Australasian Cemeteries and Crematoria Association and has 25 years experience in the industry. He says while Mr Carter's situation is particularly unique, there's a growing trend of people taking control of what happens to them after death.
7: There is a growing number of people wanting more say to create what's sometimes referred to as a good death, which is a strange thing to say, but it's where people really want to make sure when they die, the experience of their loved ones is as positive as it can possibly be in a very sad situation.
4: Mr Harrington says discussions around death are becoming more open in recent times and are important to help people cope with loss and grief.
7: Conversations around death and grief and bereavement are more common than ever. And the benefits of having those conversations to many. And it includes a much better ability for people to understand their grief and, and the grief of those around them. And I think when they do that, it enables much better coping mechanisms.
4: He says Mr Carter's victory is a fantastic outcome for the 96-year-old, particularly given his long list of achievements in Port Hedland
7: probably by extension, the local community of Port Hedland. It's great for them to know that a person of Arnold's stature in the community is going to be laid to rest in the Pioneer Cemetery, which carries a rich history of of others in the local community that have served the local community. So I think it's a fantastic outcome.
4: For Mr Carter, his burial in the Pioneer Cemetery will be the final piece of a lengthy legacy in Port Hedland.
8: For me to go as I have today and been up there and showed you the beautiful cemetery, and the beautiful outlook and explain to you why Port Hedland means so great to me, I hope that the, uh, the people can be buried where they want to be.
0: Arnold Carter ending that report from Amelia Searson in Port Hedland. And let's hope Arnold and Francis won't be needing that plot for a good long while yet. And that's Australia Wide for this Monday. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app or by visiting the Australia Wide website. Just search for ABC Australia Wide and you'll get there. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio.